0: Yeah,
1: what's Savage Worlds I keep hearing about? What kind of a name for a game is that then? And why should any of us care? Hello and welcome. My name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue. I talked about Savage Worlds back in Season 2, Episode 6, when I spoke about five games that I'd recommend everyone at least take a good look at With my recent focus on creating a multi-genre campaign, something which I believe Savage Worlds would excel at delivering, I decided to talk to someone who's not just been using the game, but also writing for it. There's a long interview ahead, but I hope you'll agree that it turned out to be pretty inspiring stuff. This is Season 3, Episode 9. But first, I want to pay tribute to the awesome Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com forward slash rpgrescue. As of this recording, we're on the cusp of hitting another Patreon goal, and I'm left wondering who will be the 20th supporter of the show, triggering me to write a bonus episode on gaming with teenagers. But in the meantime... Here, then, is the Roleplay Rescue Role of Honour. The Sword Bearers Mark Graham and Nick Lockwood. The Shield Bearers Aaron Barkley, Tim Shorts, Frank Turfler, and Ray Otis. The Torch Bearers The Armchair Adventurers Brian Miller, Jeffrey Collier, Spencer Game, Hobson Friends, Richard Fraser, Matt Jackson, Darren Green, Glenn Robinson. Edwin King, Peter Skanes, Christian Richards, and Vance Atkins. Thank you, all of you. And thank you, the listener, for honouring them with me. Frank Turfler has been playing tabletop RPGs for at least 35 years and is the voice behind Frank T's liner notes. An anchor podcast in which he shares what he's up to with print and paste tabletop terrain, techniques, theory and other things tabletop RPG related. Frank creates modular tile sets that can be printed and assembled in just about any configuration to match the encounter you need. And he releases these through his Patreon. Frank also offers his work through DriveThruRPG under the Middle Kingdom's Adventure and Trading Company. A percentage of all proceeds from his titles goes to the Phoenix Children's Hospital Foundation, which has care centers all across Arizona, USA. Welcome, Frank, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's always good to get other anchorites on the show.
0: Yeah, and you make, you make me sound so important.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's get into it. What do you prefer, player
0: or GM? Uh, I would say GM. I find that I am probably well. I can be a good player for the right GM, but I like c- to control the story, so I prefer GM. Okay,
1: and it's about story control for you, and and kind of like leading the narrative.
0: I I well, I don't know that I want to lead the narrative, but. I, I my, one of my hang-ups is not having a narrative. Mm-hmm. So it, if I don't understand where the where the story is going or the the why behind things, mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'm just a little I think maybe a little too logically sometimes and not uh, enough in a game sense, but if I am if I'm confused as to where where we're going in terms of a story, or if I don't have a a good concept of my character and my character's place in the greater narrative, I can be a little frustrated. And being the GM allows me to just have control of that no matter what. It also allows me to give control to other players. And depending on the GM you're playing with, you don't always know as a player if you have that leniency mm.
1: so does it help if you know like more about your character when you start you know having a clear background having a clear sense of things does that help
0: i think it depends on the genre or setting mm-hmm. but in general i prefer to kind of, I, i'm i'm ai guess you could say i'm old school in a, in, a, in a sense that i prefer to start out as a nobody who becomes a somebody, and learn about who that character is through play. I prefer to kind of have very little idea. the The only background, and excuse me, because some of this is probably laziness on my part, <laughs> but rather than drawing up an elaborate backstory, I'd just rather say that you know. He's fresh off the farm, fresh out of school, wet behind the ears, and has no concept of the greater world around him. Therefore, the the history may not matter as much as what is to come. Mm.
1: So, do you feel like you need to have like a clear idea of a goal then, in terms of like when you are GMing or when you are playing, where it's going? As in terms of, is that a goal thing?
0: I think I I enjoy the game a little bit more if there is some sort of goal. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was just playing in an Eberron, a 5e Eberron game. Mm-hmm. And I was a little I, – I was just thrown in because the the they had already played a couple of games. And so I was just this random character. And uh, this is all it's, – it's my – Is all friends of mine. They're my local, uh, tabletop face-to-face game. And so there's not a, a, I don't have a lot of problem with interjecting and, and, you know, taking control, but I was being respectful of what had happened previously. So I had a lot of questions about the, okay, I am this character who is, tied to a chair inside this tent. Why am I there? How did I get there? Because if we're going to add role play into the game, I've kind of want to have some motivation. Mm. I want to know the, why am I there? And, and I was still a little confused without Coming right out and asking, and that's probably what I should have done, but I was confused as to where my boundaries were as a player in terms of uh, respecting the GM's boundaries and what was created for the adventure. Knowing that we weren't playing a Fate-style or a Dungeon World-style game where the players have as much control or expected to have as much control over the adventure and what is coming next as the GM does. I know that we were working from a more or less pre-written adventure, but I was confused as to the goal of our adventure. Was it a dungeon crawl? Were we just exploring and discovering? Was there a mission that we needed to accomplish? I think some basic background for me is is needed in that regard. Not necessarily background from a setting point of view, because I think that is discoverable, but background as to the style of adventure that we're playing. You know, is it a rescue? Is it a you know, I, I just, I like to know a little bit about what, if there is a goal, what is that goal? And as it turns out, we were looking for a, a relic of some kind, and there there were a lot of puzzles involved. So it, it turned out to be just fine. I think I spoiled the fun once or twice because everybody wanted to jump into combat, and I sort of said, st- stop, wait a minute. <laughs> is the item that we're looking for in this room? Because if it isn't, can we just walk out quietly because nobody knows we're here. (laughs) And it kind of took the wind out of their sails. So, uh, but in the end, I think it it worked out. It was fine. We were able to get to more of the meat and potatoes and not have to worry about this side salad business. In the end, we had more fun, I think, than if we would have just Fought our way through a bunch of mooks that probably would have taken a lot of damage, or we would have taken a lot of damage Mm -hmm. as a result. It's an interesting point
1: you make about like GM setting the expectations. Um, I know that you know, in my own experience, it's it's a difficult thing, isn't it? You know, sort of got to know your players, and if you've got a new player, you have to take the time, I think, to outline you know, the kind of style and approach that you're going to take. Um, I, for example, I always find myself having to make it clear to people that I'm not necessarily going to alter the encounter to suit the group, you know, uh, and those kinds of things are, are yeah. you know, they're important
0: points, right? Sure. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, um, the The GM, I think as the GM, we're, we're the director of the movie. Mm. And although the players to some extent are screenwriters, writing their own character part the director has the last the final say Mm. because he has a greater vision and like a director in the movie he sees all of the moving parts and not just the one piece that the player is working on Mm. so i think that it is important to have that discussion and it does make it a little bit it's i don't know if it's difficult but it it it's important and can be a little time consuming for a new player coming into an existing game or a new player entirely of course coming into the hobby uh, because i think it is important that you spend a little extra time and care with that player explaining to them the expectations on their part, and what what you know what your role what what the roles are in the role playing game because I think there's so there's maybe triple entendre there if you you know you really want to push the boundaries on that word, <laughs> uh, but yeah I think that it's important you know I don't know that I, I agree with the sentiment that the it's the GM's job to entertain. Mm. And I may have mentioned this in a previous uh, podcast of my own, but I think that everybody has a, a job in entertaining. And for the most part, the players are responsible for entertainment just as much as the GM is. It's just the GM is the guy steering the ship. Uh, I think I I just recently heard an interview with Alexander Macris about his Arbiter of Worlds. And he was talking about this concept of, is the GM the entertainer? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to paraphrase what he said. But he, essentially what he was saying in the interview was he believes that, and I hope I get this right because I, I, I'm – um, this is what I heard let's let's say that. This is what I heard him to say, was, or I understood him to say, was that it is it is the GM's job to present the opportunity for enjoyment, the opportunity for fun uh, is you know you you present the atmosphere. For fun, more or less, you know, you're the to use a a spike pit analogy. You're the gardener. Your job is to to present an environment, a microclimate, for the plants to flourish. Hmm. The plants have the job then to actually grow and flourish. Does that make sense? Absolutely does.
1: And haven't read the book. I know you got it right as well. What do you um? What do you most enjoy about role playing games?
0: Oh man i I think it's the social aspect. Hmm. It's funny that you ask this because I've been thinking about that uh, the past couple of days, and I think it is the social aspect more than anything else. There also is the creative aspect, and the the need for expression for me is great yeah. as i consider myself an artist and as an artist i think we need to we have this desire for expression i used to think that it was the desire to create and i also thought that was my primary motivation for for enjoying role playing games but i think it's the need for expression it's not only or necessarily the need for creation Uh, I think the need to create is also a way that I express myself but I think it is that need for the of expression of the expression of myself and well I'd also be lying I'd be lying if I didn't also include the idea that role-playing games are an escape Mm. an escape you know we get to be somebody that we only dream of and we get to make our dreams reality
1: it's great what you're saying about expression because i think i've come to that conclusion very very recently um you know the game i really want to play is actually the one that um bubbles up out of myself you know and who i am and what i'm about and as you're saying that you know you kind of then create that you bring that into being don't you through the the means um, of role-playing game and all of the you know all of the various ways you can do that and hopefully you're just hoping those characters the players they come and they they add to that expression i guess does that make sense
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and you know when i when i heard you talking about that it really struck a chord with me the uh, especially and and just further further thinking on those ideas of creating the world that you want to play. I've really been thinking hard about the things that I do and the way that I create. And although I feel a great responsibility to the people who support me, Mm -hmm. part of the reason I think they support me is because I create the things that I want to create. Uh, I don't really see patreon especially as a subscription service although i think many people do many consumers do for sure but there's always been this lingering doubt in my mind that i am whether or not i'm creating the things that people want and holding on to the 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 patrons that are already there and and i would often get a it's all. It, it would be more crushing than it should be when I would see that somebody has canceled their support, mm. and I think, especially today, I was I was really thinking about this idea that I've I put a lot of stock into things like Patreon and whether or not. Uh, I guess drive through as well sales on drive through and whether or not people are talking about my stuff or using my stuff or supporting me and unfortunately I think that's 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 hurt my ability to create because I second guess myself
1: yeah i was, um I was reading Austin Kleon's book um Keep Going and one of his bits of advice is stop looking at the numbers you know stop caring about what people are saying and doing Um, switching off from the social media thing and create, allow yourself the freedom to create. And um, I guess what you're saying kind of resonates with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The the biggest stumbling block for me as a creator, and I suspect uh, for a number of other creators, hobbyist creators, uh, as I'll put it, is that we, I certainly have this this idea that maybe one day my income will be derived from the creations that I do, the creations that I make. In fact, it's not an old thought of mine. I, I went to art school thinking that I was going to be a career artist, so it's something that's always been there, and. While my current profession as a filmmaker is certainly a creative one, it's not the it's not the creative profession that I had originally set out to do mm-hmm. and uh, I think that I need to be happy with the fact that I still get to create and get paid for it and paid well and really look back at the hobby of role-playing games and understand for myself that it is first and foremost a hobby and i should not be thinking of it as an income
1: so um what's the biggest barrier you have then to get in a game
0: oh time (laughs) (laughs) time is probably the biggest barrier because even even if i were to look at online games I still don't necessarily have time. I, I hit the ground running about 5.30 in the morning, mm. and I don't let up until about 10 at night when I crash. And some part of that is uh, recently, within the past three, four years now, my wife and I made the decision to foster and adopt some children. Mm. And we've adopted four four children and this is after all of our adult children have already moved on um, for the most part uh, i've got i've got three adult children uh, 22 24 and 29 wow uh, yeah my 29 year old has a son who is a uh, 12 and he's more, I've more or less raised him as a son. They've lived with us for most of his life, but you know, they're, he's out of, they're out of the house, but she also has uh, additional children. uh, One more biological and she just adopted two and she's fostering another. So she has a very full house. And as the, as the grandparent, I end up spending time doing grandparent things such as, oh, I, I, we need to watch the kids this weekend, mm. which is, as uh, I've said before, is it it's a double edged sword. It's great in the sense that we get to have a lot of fun. But then at the same time, children use up a lot of your energy. And the youngest of my children right now is two. And she uses up everybody's energy. <laughs> she's, she, she's cute as a button, but you know, she wants to be part of everything. So we do the best we can. Uh, they've become my built in gaming group, but the the times that we have out is, is very short and it's really given me a lot of opportunity to think about how I write games, how I design games, and how how I intend to play games. You know, we, we generally have time for a pickup game that's never something that we prepare for, mm-hmm. um, and the time that we have is usually between an hour and an hour and a half, either because of external interruptions from other parts of the house, or attention Mm -hmm. you know the my kids tend to have very short attention spans and become very distracted very easily so as as a result i either don't get a lot of time playing games or i get a very short amount of time in very in, in spurts in a very specific style and i
1: guess that's what's made like your uh, your own journal that you do, you know, Frank T's liner um, and your own time of reflection when you're driving and stuff, I guess that makes that so
0: much more important to you and valuable. I'm finding that, yes, it is. I didn't realize how much va- how much value it really had until I started listening, listening back to the journal on a daily basis or even a weekly basis. Generally what I was doing is when – When the thoughts would come to me, I would just sit down and record. And usually that was in the car. My biggest hang up with that is that my car is just really loud. And I am am fighting with, there's no way I'm going to buy a new car and there's no way that I can afford to put sound deadening material into the car. And so now I just fight with technology to try and make it the best possible.
1: And I guess that you and I are a certain type as well, aren't we? We we both like our sound. Was it Colin says we're both sticklers for the sound? <laughs> yes,
0: absolutely. And that may be part of my professional background as well. Yeah, you know, just I I, I I get it. I I wish I could let it go and just let the the you know the the road noise be there as part of it. And sometimes I have done that, uh, but for the most part, I just find that I, I really want. The sound to be of a, of a decent quality. I want people to be able to understand what I'm saying without straining and Absolutely. without having the distraction of something going on in the background. But but yeah, so my, my general course for the week has been I will journal uh, infrequently. I should be making it a point to do something every day, but it's at least twice a week. And then I will go back on a monday and listen to what i had said to myself and uh, i guess everybody else <laughs> what and 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 sort of think about those things and then give more thoughts on the matter for the the final entry of of the of the week in a way setting the pace for the upcoming week and ending the previous week so and and I found that there's a lot of value in listening to my thoughts. And you've said it before that listening to your audio is so much more than just reading something that you've written. There's emotion in your voice. Yeah, it's
1: um, sometimes it's painful. Actually, you know, you're kind of listening to yourself and you're thinking, "Crikey!" Eric. And you can remember that moment. You know what I mean? yeah you, you're there you can you can just you're back in the moment and you can remember that and sometimes you can get perspective on that um but sometimes you just you know wow it hits you
0: yeah i i think you're right uh, there's something there's something about hearing things i and this this is something that i i really need to start doing more of is instead of formulating hypothesis and giving my opinion I need to really start when when I so what I'm going to say is there's something about hearing things and smelling things that are so attached to memory and emotion hmm. and I'm sure there is some psychological reason for it and so rather than just giving my opinion on things I've made this decision that I'm now going to take what I just said and do a little research before I start really talking about it. So even if I give my opinion now, I'm going to come back with some hard facts on the matter. (laughs) But I feel like listening to yourself is just as powerful as listening to, say, a song and having the memories of the time when either you first heard that song or you first had some emotion attached to that song. And it brings you back to that point in time. And I think that when I listen to myself journal, that does a very similar thing. It brings me back to that moment in in time. It's, I would write things down. And I would review my notes, and I would oftentimes think, why did I write this? This is a little, you know, sometimes the notes are just one line. You know, they're just bullets. And, and you think, what was I thinking when I wrote this? I don't have that same experience with an audio journal. Or, or I, if I do, it's very infrequent. I, when I hear myself, even if it's just a, a thought, a single sentence thought, or a couple of words of a thought, there's something in the tone of my voice that triggers that memory, and and a light bulb goes on, and I say, "Oh yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about." Let me let me expand on that. So I find that you know it, there, it's beneficial in a lot of ways. I've been hesitant. In my audio journal, to include things that were not specifically game-related or uh, Patreon-related, I I've been hesitant in keeping my sort of inner emotions out of it. I and part of that is by is design. I didn't really want another random screed, and I also I can be a very depressed person in general. And so I didn't want that to take over and be the the theme of of my podcast. So I, I'm trying really hard to not talk about challenges and struggles in a negative way, but really just as these are the the things that I need to work on overcoming for this week. The this is the challenge of this week. It's not oh this is the challenge that I face this week. <laughs> so, you know, and, and again, that's a great example of how we differentiate. We You don't get that same emotion in a blog as you do in somebody's voice.
1: We're here to talk about Savage Worlds. And, um, you know, for the sake of the listeners, I guess I better
0: ask the question, what on earth is it? What is Savage Worlds? <laughs> It's you know, it's just it's an alternate game system, right? It's a it's a kitchen sink. It is. Oh, I'm trying to think of what the what the best uh, man. It it's so hard to explain because it is a universal game system. That that's what mm-hmm. it is a universal game system. You can play any time, any place, any character. It is. Uh, on the box, it says fast, furious, and fun. It is indeed fast, furious, and fun. Uh, that's not to say that in the wrong hands, it doesn't bog down. I think it can get very crunchy if people let it, but it doesn't have to be crunchy. It is my preferred game system, and it's been my preferred game system for about four years now. Um, i guess it's not a d20 system it's a uh, would you call it a dice chain system i'm not i don't know i've struggled with how to sort of define the specific system uh, other than the fact that it is a skills based system
1: yeah so skills and attributes are represented by dice right yeah and you roll those dice trying to get a four or better to succeed at stuff. And um it's that simple <laughs> actually, as I understand it. It
0: is that simple. And uh as a it became my favorite because as a GM, it becomes very easy to run a game without having to deal with a lot of prep. It hasn't always been that way. Um I can't I, I came from a predominantly D20 background. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons was my first game back in 1981. And I played nothing but AD&D through high school. And then, uh, I don't know, back when the 5E playtest, D&D Next playtest was coming out is when I got back into. I, I had a long hiatus from uh, just graduating high school through college and into most of my adult life until when my daughter was 17, she said, well, are we going to ever play this game? You've carried these books with you every time we've moved. Are we ever going to play this game? And I, and I, you know, I think there were angels singing in a choir behind me when she said that. <laughs> and as a result, awesome. as a result, I, I wanted to find out what was new and happening, and D and D next was was on the plate. So that was my coming back to the system. But I, I just really felt like there was a lot of prep involved. I would spend hours every week getting the game ready for our our group that had grown from my daughters to my daughters plus a few friends of ours, mm. and. Every week we were playing and it was great, but I was spending all week getting ready for this game. And I, oh, I had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and on top of that, I started really thinking about this idea of I want to run something that's a little bit different. I don't want to just have this fantasy world. One of the things that I've always been interested in is bringing things like Gamma World into d and d. And of course, in the in the uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons GM's guide, there is a conversion in the back of the guide on how to bring in games like Gamma World and uh, Boot Hill. and I think there may have been a couple of others into. Dungeons and Dragons or going from AD and D back to those games, but it wasn't simple and it wasn't something that anybody really wanted to do. Now, when I came back to the hobby, there was a lot of experimentation, especially when you had games that were working off of the OGL things, games that were like Labyrinth Lord and, uh, swords and wizardry. And with Labyrinth Lord, you had the Gamma World equivalent that was using the Labyrinth Lord skeleton so that you could move things back and forth. So, but there wasn't any, you know, obviously at that point in time, there wasn't anything uh, being designed for 5e. And it, and it's still, again, having that much prep it was just not something that I wanted to add more prep to bring in a mutant future type game into my 5e. And so somewhere along the way, I was introduced to Savage Worlds. And it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about I knew there were other games out there. There were that there were sort of universal game systems. I definitely knew about GURPS. I had never played GURPS and I didn't even know the first thing about it, but I did know it was a, well, it's, you know, generic universal role-playing system. So um, (laughs) (laughs) I knew that it was, I knew that it was a kitchen sink. And somewhere along the way I had gotten into a conversation on Google plus. I really miss Google (laughs) plus. (laughs) I I, I got into a conversation on Google Plus about Eberron and Savage Worlds. And I started talking to uh, this guy and we were talking about Eberron. We were talking about Savage Worlds. uh, Found out that he lives in the the next town over from me. And he says, well, I'll run some Savage Worlds for you. So we got together and we ran some deadlands. By the way, we've still, after... 4 years have not run Eberron in Savage Worlds. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just amazed with the the feel of the game. It felt like playing in a movie. It felt like playing in your fa- in, in your favorite novel. The the anything goes attitude for their characters was refreshing the Mm. the fact that i could have a sword swinging barbarian who you know was wielding essentially a lightsaber in a wild west setting was (laughs) amazing you know a wild west setting with zombies no less i I just thought (laughs) this is perfect. This is exactly what I was looking for. And at the time I was writing a sci-fi adventure for White Star. And I immediately said, no, I, I need to also write this for Savage Worlds. I knew nothing about Savage Worlds other than having played a few times. But the one thing I found out is if you want to know something about a system and you really want to learn the rules of the system, Step one: make a character. Step two: write an adventure. Uh-huh. And so that was that was my introduction to Savage Worlds, and I think, you know, as you say, the the, the simplest bit is you, you you roll a die based on the die type according to your skills and attributes. You and and the target number is is. Four, I mean outside of penalties, bonuses, and if you're in combat i mean the the base number is always four, except when it isn't, <laughs> <laughs> but at least you have a starting point you know it is it, it's I don't know, and it still amazes me to this day how four becomes a difficult number to hit because not only are <laughs> you rolling. To hit a four, you know, and it's it's a it's a d4 through a d12. The d20 is rarely, if ever, used, and if it is, it's mostly for random tables. But it's a d4 through a d12, and all wild card characters, which are player characters and named NPCs or adversaries, roll their skill die or attribute die plus a wild die. And if you're familiar with the D6 West End game system, it's it's kind of similar to that. But the idea is that you take the higher of the two rolls. So even if you have a D4 in a skill or attribute, you're you're still rolling a D6. And I'll never understand how hard it can be, really, to hit a four with a D6. Better yet, how hard it is to hit a four on a d twelve. I mean, I've rolled, I've, I've rolled plenty of twelves and not hit a four all night. And you're rolling as well. Like I said, you're rolling two dice. You have twice as much chance, to some degree. Of course, I'm sure that that percentage is is skewed depending on the type, the the die type that you're rolling. But you're always rolling a d six, and on top of that, you're. Dice explode, and this is probably my one of the my favorite parts of the, of the system is having these the dice that explode, and um, I think the the term for Savage Worlds is the ace. So when you roll a yeah. die and it and it you know and and you get the highest number on that die, you then roll it again and add the next number to that that highest number. So you're constantly, it it becomes a cumulative roll over time. And so it's not unheard of for you to roll a D4 and get 36 on a roll. (laughs) (laughs) And the first time anybody experiences it is the best for everybody at the table because the excitement level just goes up. It's like, it's, it's better than rolling a natural 20. I mean, it's just amazing. It's a phenomenon to some degree. Because, again, I don't know that there's a way that you can logically explain what happens when that happens. You know, psychologically, what happens when you roll and your dice aces and you roll again and it aces and you roll again and it aces? It's just it's it's a it's a great it's a great thing. And, And again, it. I don't know that it's going to be for everybody, but it is the game for me. And it has the excitement level that I want in a game. And because most of my gaming is with my kids, the kids love it. They love it because they feel like they've got a better chance at success, even though I know they really don't. (laughs) On top of on top of all of the those mechanics, there's what's called a, the Benny economy. So you get bennies, uh, usually represented by poker chips, and essentially it's a it's a fate point. It's a way. It's a get out of jail free card. It's a you can use them. Most often, they're used for rerolling dice. So you roll a, a four, you get a two. I, I have a Benny. I want to re-roll that that you know that that die and see if i can get a a better result and you you take the better of the two but you get that re-roll and and that again for new players and younger players that is that is great because they get that opportunity as well as you you get to earn bennies through role play so it has a built-in role-play incentive. And as for as much of a hindrance role-playing has been for my kids, they tend to be a little bit more reserved and don't express themselves as often. And when, when I, when I put them on the spot, they tend to freeze. But having the Benny economy and having that carrot that they can then look after it gives them a little bit more of an incentive to want to play that character, not necessarily act out that character. It's not play acting, but to play their character in a way that makes sense for their character and the story so that things like hindrances come into play. So that a success with the yes but uh response, the the failure but you still so you succeed but at a cost? Uh yeah, the failful. Yeah, it, it, it makes <laughs> it makes those experience happen more often. And for me, that makes for a much more interesting game. Uh, it conflict is what makes story Interesting, and it's the reason we enjoy good movies is because of conflict. It's the reason, it's the reason that we stop and watch people fighting, is because there's conflict. Mm. So, um, you know, in talking about Savage Worlds, it is a kitchen sink. It is the ability because it is a skills based system. I can create exactly the character i want to create i don't have to worry do i have these feats coming up do i have those feats coming up i say i want to have a lightsaber wielding barbarian and i pick the skills and attributes and edges that fit the character not just the character in terms of Uh, mechanical aspects and how do I min max, which is very difficult to do in Savage Worlds because of the fact that you can take a skill and I can take a skill and depending on other factors, that skill, you're not necessarily going to be able to say, well, you always take this combination of skills and it's going to get you to the perfect character because there are all there are always other factors that you have to consider. And I'm not going to say that's impossible, but it's very difficult. But nevertheless, I can tailor my character to my needs and the story that we're playing without having to think about what what is this character going to look like when I level up? To 20th level and is it going to be where I want it to be in a way you become your character becomes a result of the experiences that you have you have the opportunity to say at the beginning of the game I want a a, a sword wielding barbarian a, a laser sword wielding barbarian but then two or three sessions down the road or, you know, uh, throughout the campaign, he actually becomes a gun-toting scholar because you have that opportunity. <laughs> There's not a pre, pre-chosen path. You know, you'll you want to take, again, you want to take cowboys into space, take cowboys into space. And that's the other power, that, that's the other powerful part about having a, a universal game system and a game system that is tailored to your desire for whatever setting you want to put it into. You can put it in any setting. You can, ma- I mean, the, the most common thing is people mashing up settings and uh, so, you know, doing things like uh, Sharknado in a trailer park. So you, you have a lot of that as like the current trends For a lot of Savage Worlds settings. But at the same time, you can be very serious about your setting and have a very realistic setting that is space, but uh, cowboys in space, like, say, you know, um, Serenity or something like that. One of the things that um,
1: I've always found with generic systems is that there's a tendency with a new player for them to not quite know where to start. How do you feel that
0: Savage Worlds sort of overcomes that problem? I don't know if it does. Um, The the two biggest hurdles that I see with Savage Worlds is is that there is no baked-in setting. So you you really have to find somebody who is running a setting. When I first opened up the book and tried to sit down to play, I had a Weird Wars 2 setting book. And I had I really it, it was we we cracked open the book. This was previous to our Deadlands game. We cracked open the book mm-hmm. and we're just reading through the rules which were simple enough and it was simple enough to create the character but then getting into the game and understanding what we were doing that was something that was a little bit beyond us and until we sat down with an experienced player who made recommendations it wasn't until it wasn't until that point that the light went on i think there there's a little bit more explanation as to the the hows and whys in this latest version there's some uh side bar conversation going on where you've got these new iconic characters that describe different aspects of the game as as you read through their the characters are developed and very much like uh uh say RuneQuest was laid out where you had a, a character mm. who you were rolling up this character as you read the rules. Um, so there's, there's this, there's these, you know, other voice as part of the rules, which I think helps the, the hard the other hard part was coming from that fantasy D D 20 system uh, was it's, it's, it's a very different game. It's, it's very foreign. So not having a class structure in place is mm. definitely a, a a hindrance. it's it's a roadblock. it's it's you know, I think that and one of the things that I had been working on in the past was this system or this setting that more or less was a generic D and d setting. For Savage Worlds, which really doesn't exist completely because it's so much more exciting to do other things with Savage Worlds that I don't think many people want to go the route of. Well, here's your generic Tolkien high fantasy setting that is a mirror image of Dungeons and Dragons all the way down to here are some archetypes for you to play that look and feel and act just like the the fighter, the magic user, the rogue, and the cleric. Now, there are mm. now, in more recent years, in the past four years since I've been playing, there are people who are making stuff that fills those gaps. And because Savage Worlds itself doesn't have a baked-in setting, mm. there are a number of other... Uh, third parties as well as pinnacle who have settings to play and many of those settings incorporate setting rules and they the the writing on all, all of those things are getting better all the time because i think people have seen the need for explaining certain aspects of games rather than relying on you know, other people to explain the games to them. So I think I, yeah. I think at the writing for those for the settings has become better, as well as you know it's that concept of it goes back to the concept of setting the expectation, and I, I think that previous editions of Savage Worlds just didn't have a great. They just didn't do it well. They didn't set the expectation well, in a sense, that we were talking about before, in, in, in what what mm. you should expect from the game system. But in the end, the core rulebook is just that. It is a core rulebook, and everything else is tacked on. It, so if if you have a vivid imagination and you are ready to just go wild, then you might not need anything more. But if you are looking to jump in and you're strapped for time or don't have that sort of experience where you're used to running things on the fly and creating new worlds as you go, you're going to want to look for an external setting to base your game in. And, and those uh, again, most of those settings will help with learning. Or at least understanding the expectations of characters from both sides of the screen.
1: What do you think makes Savage Worlds a, a good game for someone coming back to the hobby? Uh,
0: I've I've said it; it's it's low prep. It's on 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 all mm-hmm. fronts. It's low prep. It's low prep. It is fast, furious, and fun. I keep saying that because that's their tagline, but it's it's true. It because it's low prep from a GM standpoint you could very easily, with an un, with an understanding of the setting and basic understanding of an adventure that you're going to run, you could very easily run it on the fly. In fact, most of the adventures, if you will, are what are called one sheets. And one sheet is essentially one sheet of paper, eight and a half by 11, uh, generally. And it is both sides of the paper, and that is an entire night's worth of adventure written out. Wow, you could easily get two to four hours of adventure off of that one page. Uh, usually it doesn't necessarily include things like maps uh, or great, you know, information on NPCs, but it has the adventure and enough information that you could run very quickly. And run it on the fly, you know, re- review it and then sit down and run it with it right next to you. So from that aspect, as someone who is a GM, the it is very easy to run. There is not a lot of GM overhead, if you will. There's not a lot of, uh, I'm not using a lot of brain cells to outthink or outwit my players. I'm really concentrating <laughs> on the story and what is happening in the now. The only other game system I think that does that well is probably uh, the Cypher system because it takes all of the the dice rolling off of the GM's plate. And it's odd to know, to realize how much that really does use in terms of uh, brain power. Uh, hmm. and there are probably others, but that's the, that's the major one that I'm familiar with. The... Um, the other half of that, as a player, mm-hmm. it is everything that we are currently used to as a consumer. It can be gritty. It can be, you can play social encounters in this, with, with the same amount of excitement as you would a combat encounter. Uh, it can be investigation. It can be, It can be light. It can be funny. It can be super heroic. the, The phrase that is often used, which I find is overused, is cinematic. And it's cinematic in, I think, every sense. Because the rules get out of the way. You are not necessarily worried about the rules. You can be, but you don't have to be. There's not there's yeah. nothing holding you down in the gameplay, and uh, when you do get into like say a combat situation, it, it's it's not something that lasts for hours. It's it's really something that happens very quickly, and usually very. It, it's very story oriented. It it has a very I don't know how to explain this, so I won't, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it, but yeah, I mean, it's, it has the feel of being able to play in a novel. You really do. You can, you can play, your play style can be anything. You can, I've played dungeon crawls. I've done cinematic type stuff. We've done, superhero stuff we uh, we played through a rifts campaign which was was a blast because everything is just dialed up to 11 you know it it was mm-hmm. I like to say the best superhero game that I have ever played because it really did feel like mm-hmm. we were superheroes and in general that's not the type of game that I like to play but I had so much fun and we we got so much done it, it just it you don't spend hours searching a room. Not that you have to in D&D, but there's not this need. It, it, there's a perception. I, I feel like it's a culture around the game as opposed to the culture that surrounds uh, Dungeons & Dragons or D20 games. I think that mm-hmm. because it's a new game, relatively new, it doesn't have the baggage that... Dungeons and Dragons has, or D20 games have. Mm. I think that, again, it goes back to those expectations. I didn't realize how much of what we do ha- weighs heavily on the expectations of of everything, of the game, of the players, of the GM, the system, uh, because it, it really does go back to that, that idea, I think. It can, you you want to run a four-hour combat? Sure, you can run a four-hour combat you want to run a 30 minute skirmish, run a 30 minute skirmish. You don't want to even get involved in that. There are rules for quick combat that allow you to deal out a few cards and decide the outcome of the combat and then have the players narrate what happened. Um, I think with every version of the game not much has changed they've clarified a lot of rules they've changed a few rules here and there and they're usually the ones that are very sort of scratch your head i don't understand what's going on here or convoluted but for the most part they just the stuff that they add in is stuff for storytelling making better stories through your game and it's still it's still a game i mean i think that's at the end of the day we have to realize that we're still playing a game so there's still game in our role-playing game Hmm. i was um i was just thinking about how i mean
1: before i really read and even had a go at savage worlds and we've had a couple of games um i'd heard a lot that it kind of encourages the use of miniatures and of course given what you do in terms of a lot of tabletop terrain and stuff i wanted what your perspective was on that um, do you think it encourages
0: miniatures no i don't think it does i think the original rules did and of course it grew out of a miniatures game uh, and, and i guess the same way that dungeons and dragons grew out of a miniatures game uh, although it was more of a miniature skirmish game but i don't think that it encourages it in the sense that it says you must use miniatures in fact I don't really remember seeing a whole lot on miniatures rules. There are rules for movement and rules for position. But for the most part, there aren't specific rules dealing with miniatures that you absolutely have to have. You can hand wave movement, you know, disengagement and and you know, opportunity type attacks, you don't need those, you don't need miniatures to show that. But I do think that a lot of people enjoy miniatures for when they're playing Savage Worlds. I also think, and I'm going to probably catch some flack for this, I think there's a lot of people, even old school players, who enjoy miniatures with their D&D. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, I have to be completely honest with myself and everybody else. In 1989, 19, well, the years of, between 81 and 89, we had miniatures on the table. You know, we had a dry erase gridded mat on the table. We may not have been playing with miniatures rules, but it was there. And I think yeah. that there's a time and place for miniatures. And if you're looking at using for me, miniatures become window dressing, Uh, the terrain and all that is it's, it's setting the stage. I I'm not interested in, you know, Oh, well I can only move six inches. I can only move, you know, I don't, that's not of interest to me in, in a sense. I, in fact, I prefer, just you know near and far but what i do like about having miniatures on the table with combat is knowing relatively where one character is and seeing the perspective of the location and the other uh characters or miniatures you know sitting there on the table because then it becomes very it's It's less information that I have to actually keep track of in my head if I just look down at the table and say, oh, yes, that's right, you were engaged in combat with the troll while he was engaged with combat with the ogre on the other side of the cavern. And so it's less about specifics in that regard and more about having markers for notes. And I don't think, I can say unequivocally, without a doubt, as somebody who designs terrain and occasionally mini- paper miniatures um, and who's basically my, my entire RPG collection is dependent on making terrain at this point, uh, it is not something that I am married to, I use the use of terrain in a game. In fact, I usually save... Terrain for one encounter. It's rare that I am laying things out as a okay. You move, you move six feet. Now I'm going to put another tile down. You know, I I don't know that I, (laughs) I I would never. I've tried that, and it it starts to look like a, a video game scrolling on by because you're you're picking up the last tile and putting it in front of the 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 first one, and you know it becomes this sort of conveyor belt as they're moving down a long hallway. And at the end of the day, you say, Why am I doing this? I just tell them it's a 60 foot long hallway. And when you get to the end, there's a room. Boom, put the room on the table. That's what the room looks like.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, um, miniatures have always just been that tactile thing. You know, we were talking earlier about engaging all the senses, yeah. you know, um, how it inspires us. And I think for me, Getting my hands on a toy soldier, um, and then being able to manipulate that in some way around the you know a scene in a key scene like you're describing, that adds to the excitement a little bit. It's it's visceral. It's a little bit more tactile. You know, um, is it necessary? Mm, nope.
0: <laughs> and I agree one hundred percent. You know, it it is it is fun, and I can tell you, I, I ran um, I ran my sci-fi horror game at a con uh last year last year and we pulled out all the stops the con was designed to allow for this it every game was run in a hotel room in a suite so you were sitting in a living room essentially and so we had a we had a table i brought in uh, a speaker for sound and i had background sounds and music going uh, I would have had lighting, but i forgot forgotten my remote controls for my lights. But I would have had lighting, <laughs> and I had a showpiece final encounter, which sat on the table with. I, I had the base; the base of it sat on the table the whole game, um, and then at the at the at that final encounter, I moved all of the pieces into place. I don't know that we actually. Paid any attention to the pieces on the table except to say, My character is running over here to this wall, pick it up and moved it over. But for the most part, there was no measuring. There was no, I mean, at some point we weren't even using the miniatures. It was an afterthought. But having all of that really created an atmosphere for the players. Uh, the feedback I got was everybody loved it and uh, they, they think that you know, all of those things played a part in making this a very immersive and enjoyable game. So I, I do enjoy that. I, you know I said before you don't that the, the GM's job is not to entertain, but it's my desire, my need as a creative to express myself. So therefore, I do enjoy those parts. I do enjoy expressing myself through a little bit of theater at the table.
1: Okay, so final words then, really. You got any tips for people coming back to the hobby? Uh, uh,
0: man, just jump in with both feet. Pick something and jump in. I The biggest tip I have is do not be afraid. Don't Don't let challenges and barriers stop you from having fun. There's some place that you can do it, even if it's just solo adventures or uh, alone time that you are taking and creating characters or reading an RPG. For years, I've spent more time reading RPG books like somebody would read novels than playing games especially in recent years it's it's, it's because of the you know children and, and a busy schedule but don't don't let don't let all those things take your place we choose to do the things that we want to do so if we really want to play rpgs then we can choose to play rpgs
1: frank terfler thanks so much for your time today and thanks for talking to us you're welcome Anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of Roleplay Rescue. I hope you enjoyed it. Huge thanks to Frank Turfler for sharing his thoughts on Savage Worlds and on RPGs in general. And thank you also to the amazing Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through their generous donations and encouraging words. Finally, thank you to the listener. Thanks for grabbing this episode and giving it a listen. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll be back next week with another episode. Game on.